Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have a charitable resource ready to deploy when they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds or giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, aligned with your values, and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor-advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash JustNews for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advised fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Just News. Hi there, everyone. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is an author, scholar, essayist, political and cultural critic. He is a veritable encyclopedia on warfare as well. And today we're going to have a homage to our war veterans, because this should be published either on um, November 11th, Veterans Day, or the day after. So we would like to do a little discussion of our what our war veterans experience, and we'll look at a few battles. And But we also want to look at the elections, because what is everybody fighting for, after all, but that we have democracy and freedom. And so our elections have just finished, and this is the first opportunity after the elections that Victor has had a chance to talk about the some of the outcomes. I've realized that the Elections are not complete as of today, which is Thursday, November 10th, but we will um, hopefully come to some conclusion. I realize the Georgia race is going to go on for another month or so, but we'll get there. Before we go into the show today, let's go ahead and have a moment for some messages and we'll come right back. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, They've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion. Hunter Biden and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. 
I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. And I would like to remind everybody that Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Well, hello, Victor. How are you doing today? Um, I'm on the road, Sammy. I had to go to Milwaukee for Bradley Foundation and then I flew to Tucson and now I'm back in Phoenix for the Horowitz. And this is kind of my swan song to speaking (laughs) i think at the age at the ripe old age of 69 and maybe under the influence of long COVID, i think i'm retiring from out of state speaking but i've enjoyed it and the people have been very hospitable i love the the, my former my fellow bradley board members everybody's been talking about the election both before and after so it's but i haven't been able to because i've been working all day uh, at events, I haven't been able to do any media on the election, but I have been staying up kind of late and reading about it and talking to people. So that's a value. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that I'm going to learn something new. I'm sure your listeners will too. So let's go ahead and get into the election. Um, it seems to me just as kind of a a novice at this. Both sides are claiming victory on this election. And um, it does seem that the Republicans have gained more seats, but the Democrats seem to be saying, well, we didn't do as bad as we thought either in the seats that we lost or in the percentage that they lost by in some of those seats. So what I thought we would do today is look at the uh, the the positive side first, some of the better victories and your thoughts on what they are showing us about our political culture at this time. And let's go ahead and start with the really big victory for DeSantis and Rubio in Florida. What are your thoughts? Well, that's pretty amazing because just four years ago, as everybody's pointed out, he only beat a very mediocre Gillum, remember the person with a sort of sordid aftermath to his failed gubernatorial bid, he ended up in a hotel room under dubious circumstances. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he in four years, he's transmogrified into this powerhouse that won. He didn't just beat Charlie Crist, he obliterated him. And his coattails brought Marco Rubio, who obliterated his opponent. And there wasn't one Republican that won in this supposedly purple, I mean, one Democrat that won in a statewide office. So now, and, you know, his critics say, well, that's because he's got three to 500,000 expatriate, uh, ex, you know, patriot New Yorkers or Californians that have moved there. And they're pretty right wing that there's more to it than that. He was right on the lockdowns. He was right to take on Disney. He's right to take on critical race there. So he's got a very successful record. And before we get into the midterms, there's three dynamics that everybody should be aware of. One is this, I mean, in an otherwise somewhat disappointing night, he's, it was brilliant what happened in Florida. Nobody had anticipated that margin. There were even people saying, well, maybe Charby Chris is going to close the gap. He's only seven. He's six behind. No, he was obliterated. And he won 
Dade County, he won 55% of Latino vote. He won a liberal enclave. He won almost all the liberal enclave. So it was pretty, you know, 60%. How do you do that in Florida if you're a Republican? So that was one factor. The second factor is, and we'll get into it, is Joe Biden now claims that his he was successful. So his sort of night phantom of the opera, semi-fascist, un-American things that we criticize on this podcast, together with they want to kill every woman by denying her an abortion, together where with Paul Pelosi was attacked by a MAGA zealot who happened to be a nudist, a commune, a hippie, an illegal alien, and a BLM pride supporter is nevertheless under the influence of tough Trump rhetoric. Well, that all we all, we said that that was demagoguery and McCarthyism, and people would see through it. No, we were wrong. They, it worked, and we thought, you know, we being the conservative side thought he, that was a, a fatal error. Biden not to try to defend his record on inflation, fuel prices, the border, crime, uh, deteriorating racial relationships, um, maybe foreign policy, most notably Afghanistan. And he didn't talk about any of them, much less did he defend them, much less did he, did he alter course. He just said, you know what? These people are insurrectionaries. They want to destroy democracy. And if a Democrat loses, that's synonymous with democracy being destroyed. And you know what? It worked. It worked. And so yep. he is going to run, I think, barring his health, he's 80 years old, but what he's now giddy, he's rubbing salt in the conservative wounds. And he's, and I, so that's the second thing. And the third thing is Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is being blamed and then defended. He's being blamed because his candidates, with the exception of J.D. Vance, did not do well. And then his defenders say, well, either did O'Day in Colorado, so he tried to distance himself. So they're going to go back and forth over that. But Donald Trump did, on the eve of the election, do two unwise things. He winked a nod that he was going to run. And, you know, there's no law against doing that. But you take away attention from the midterms coming up. And more importantly, you galvanize some left-wing nuts to go out and vote against any Trump-affiliated candidate. And then two, he attacked Ron DeSantis. He called him Ron DeSantis. And why would you do that? Split the ranks right before the election. And then, of course, he was sitting on a $100 million pack. And I know that that was being saved for his primary fights. But when you have Blake Masters outspent and you have Oz outspent, you might have wanted to spread $10 bucks around because it would yeah. have enhanced his name. But he didn't. And then after the election was over, he attacked O'Day and was kind of happy that he lost. And he said some other things. He said, you know, I really didn't like Oz. It was, you know, Melania watching TV. And and so and then he attacked the uh, New Hampshire candidate, the general. Bolduc, yeah. Bolduc, is that his name? Bolduc. Bolduc, yeah. He attacked yeah. him and said, you know, he, he should have gone the whole nine yards on, you know, election denial. And he didn't. He was so, running against that Hassan. He lost yes, by a lot. Didn't he, he did. So, yeah. so the point I'm making is, before we get into winners and losers, is that Biden, a winner in his mind, but he he, he avoided a, a wipeout, and that's victory. And then DeSantis, a winner. 
and Trump a perceived loser. Now, how does that figure out? It means the following that Biden will run now, and that's bad for the Democrats because he will lose. He's a, he's a flawed candidate, a flawed individual. He's not going to win. But he would have a greater chance, I think, against Trump at this early date than he would DeSantis. So given DeSantis showing and given Trump's uh, criticism, you might see that you're going to a, a 2024 runoff between these two people, an election between them, and that would favor the conservatives. That's one yeah. way of looking at it. The other way is expectations. Uh, you know, the average is 21 seats and one or two Senate that a first-term president loses. And Joe Biden was bragging that he only lost five seats, but we're not out of this yet. And so we're not going to learn. I think there, as I'm speaking on a Thursday afternoon on November 10th, and I'm in Phoenix at 3.30 in the afternoon, there are a lot of seats out there, and there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of pickups that people did not expect from Republicans yeah. in, in Long Island, Lorene Babbitt apparently has just been uh his and that she was behind and now she I think she's been declared the winner or she's going to win. And it looks like there's a pathway where they could win 18 to 20 seats. If that were true, that would be pretty good. And there's a pathway. I don't think it's gonna happen, but if Adam Laxalt hung on. And Blake Masters hung on, uh, came back, and they won Herschel Walker's. They would get the proverbial fifty-two seats that everybody had predicted. So what I'm getting at is, after all this sturm and drang, you might end up with the Republicans getting doing okay, but they're going to seem like they didn't do okay. And why was that? Because you had everybody predicting. In the Wall Street Journal, power, all, you know, I thought, I said that on one of the, I said it would be, they're going to have a rendezvous with a reckoning. I said that about the Democrats. But there were people, Newt Gingrich said they were, they could lose up to 50 seats and they could get 55, the Republicans could get 55 um, Senate seats. So the expectations were so high. And what those expectations were fortified by was that really good pollsters, the inside advantage people. I really like Robert Cahaley, and he's got a good record. He's fourth or fifth rated poll in the United States out of 30 or 40 polls for accuracy in the past. But he was he was he was giving polls that were astounding that had Kerry Lake up by six. And he was right about JD Vance, but Kerry Lake and Lake Masters was even or up a point. And in New Hampshire, Bolduc was going to close within one, and Patty Murray was in danger by that wonderful Tiffany Smiley and Tudor Dixon, whom I really like, was Gretchen Whitmore. He was she she had closed the gap, and so there was this impression that it would not only were they going to do very well, they were going to blow them out of the water, and so that has colored everything that that didn't happen and people are blaming and, and blame game and pointing fingers. But if you just take a deep breath, there's about a 90% likelihood today on a Thursday that Joe Biden is dead in the House of Representatives. He's not going to have any more legislation. They will have discipline and they will stop all of his legislation. And there will be House investigations of Hunter's laptop, of the Wuhan lab, 
etc. And there is a 50-50 chance that uh, they're ahead 49 uh, to 48. They need two out of three seats. They need Herschel Walkers. And it's very hard for an incumbent once he loses to then win. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, and Warnick didn't win. Well, he got more votes, but he didn't get his 50%. And we'll see what happens. But there's a 50-50 chance that Herschel Walker could win. There's about a 30%, 20%, 30% chance Blake Masters could win. I'd say there's a 55% chance that Laxalt can hang on. So there's a possibility they could get 51 votes. If that were yeah. true, they would unleash a lot of investigations and there would not be another Supreme Court or high federal court, appellate court, circuit court appointment. Wasn't there about 70,000, I think, libertarian um, votes for libertarian there in was. Georgia? That that's, a very, pro- that's a very good point because... Yeah. Uh, those ballots had already been cast when the libertarian candidate pulled out. Yeah. And so everybody said, well, here's a Walker. Uh, he's a beneficiary that the libertarian candidate pulled out. So they obviously, because he was, uh, he was more conservative. He picked up those votes. No, it didn't happen that way because most of the votes or a great deal of them at least had already been cast. And yeah. so I think the guy's name was Oliver, but there were, I think it was more than 70. It was like 80,000 votes. And, you know, he's only uh, behind, he ended up only behind by 40,000. If he only got half of the libertarian votes, he, he and that can make a big difference yeah. if, that, if those votes all go to him. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, if they go in to vote, because they yes. may be just so disgruntled that they don't go vote. But probably well, what we many don't of want them to do will. is you don't want to do what we what Donald Trump did in 2021. Excuse me, 2000. Yes, 2021 in the last special election. He was so angry at the, the national vote that he essentially told people to rally that your vote was not going to count. And he got in a big fight with Kemp and he got in a fight with the Secretary of State, and then he offended swing voters, and he didn't think that it would be possible for Georgia to elect two socialists. But they did, because the base sat out, and the swing voter turned on Trump. And they took it out at Kelly Loeffler and and Purdue. So you don't want to do that. I think the the best strategy, I think Kayleigh McEnany said that, that Trump stays out of Georgia, but he fervently hits the airways and his rallies tells everybody to vote in Georgia for Herschel Walker. And then he taps some of that hundred million. I know it's his money, it's his pack, but he sends 10 or $15 million down there. And then you'd send in all of the Senate colleagues of would be colleagues of Herschel Walker. If he were to win, you send in DeSantis, you barnstorm the state and you watch uh, the mail and ballot. One thing, one lessons of this election is that when you're getting 60 and 70 percent of people not voting on election day and you throw into that me- existing mess, ranked voting like you saw in Alaska or this majority necessary you see in Georgia, you're not going to get we're not going to get results anymore. And a lot of this is tech based. The you know, getting the word out or mastering the data points and rank voting or organizing people for mail in. And the Republicans are just, 
They're not techies to the degree that left is. And they've mastered this non-election day voting and it's killing the Republicans. So they either have two choices. They either have to get in these red state legislatures and say, you know what, we're not going to go back to an absentee ballot that you have to have a reason that you're not going to go. You have to request it. You're not going to get it mailed automatically. We're going to get down to 10 or 15 percent. We're going to have the returns done by midnight of the election day. And there's not going to be any third party vote harvesting or they're going to have to do what Devin Nunes did uh, very successfully and brilliantly in his last congressional race, he out vote harvested the vote harvesters. He just said, you know what? I can't change the crazy laws in California, but I see how they operate and I'm going to trump how they operate. In other words, I'm going to do what they do, but far more efficiently. And so they sent, you know, 15 million or might've been even more to destroy Devin Nunes in his last congressional run, uh, race. And he still won by eight or nine points. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Can we, um, there's another positive side that I wanted to look at, which was the um, victory in Georgia of the Governor Kemp over uh, Stacey Abrams and the victory of Abbott over Beto O'Rourke. And I was wondering, those losses to poor Abrams (laughs) and O'Rourke, is that- The $200 million couple- yeah, does that end their no, political me, careers? The, the $400 million <laughs> couple. Yeah, well, you know, there's an article somewhere, uh, maybe it was on Powerline, that's one of my favorite uh, avenues on the internet, that they're kind of like the Harold Stassen. You know, he was this character that had, he ran for every presidential, in every presidential race. He ran for everything and he lost. He ran in his 80s. I was a teenager and every time they had their election returns, there would be Harold Stassen. And that's Beto O'Rourke. This is the third le- uh, This is the third election that he's lost. He lost as senator against Cruz. He lost in the presidential primaries in 2020, and now he's lost against Abbott. And he keeps getting worse each time that he runs. And he does little videos of him at the dentist, and he does some little wears his tight pants and does his dad. But he's a completely fabricated media invention. There's no there there. He was a three-term congressman that was undistinguished. Stacey Abrams is an election denier. She got rich and made a career. When she ran the first time against Kemp, she was known as a trashy, mediocre novelist that wrote basically sex scenes and romance novels. And she (laughs) had hundreds of thousand dollars out on her credit card. And she was a non-entity. And then she created this myth of, that she was Barbara Jordan, the articulate black woman that was an intellectual. It was a myth. Barbara jo- Jordan was a genius and, and very highly educated. And Stacy, you're no Barbara Jordan. And she toured the country claiming that after she had lost by over 50,000 votes that she was the real governor. And all these people who are now calling Republicans election denialists, they were welcoming her as the real true virtual governor of Georgia. And then she ran again. She lost. If you total up the millions she spent in two races and the millions that Beto spent in three, it's it's over $300 million. We can add another name. You know what? I've just thought, let's add Charlie Chris to that. As a, oh, as yes, a, that's true. That guy has his own uh, contribution to the Hall of Loser fame. And that is Hall of Fame for Losers. And that is he 
although he was governor for one term and he was two-term congressman, but he has a distinction of running for a senator and as senator and governor in three different parties. He's run as a Democrat, he's run as a Republican, he's run as an independent, and he's lost in all three manifestations. So these people are all media creations. They're, they're, there was never anything there with them. They were never going to win. And they were useful to incite money or grift money on the internet or to make an Abbott or Kemp spend more money. But the idea they were going to be serious contenders was all mythology. Oh, they yeah. were mediocrities. All three of them were mediocrities. Yeah. Well, and one more thing before we go to a break. The House seats in California and New York seem to have gone red, I, or at least that's my read, whereas you see th- places like Colorado and Connecticut and New Hampshire where they're all turned blue. But did you get that impression think, about well, we California and New York? Yeah, we don't. We don't have all, and I want to be careful, we don't have all, because California is a mess. It's just as bad as Arizona. And it's, you know, nobody, there's no consequences for being a mediocre registrar in California like these other places. There's no consequences. But it does seem that races in Orange County and San Joaquin Valley, Sierra Foothills, people like Mike Garcia, that everybody said was going to lose in the Tehachapi area, and David Valadeo, who I think there's only two people who voted to impeach Donald Trump the second time in the House that have survived of the 10. And I think he's one of the two. The other guy, I think, is in Washington that won. And I think David Valadeo is going, Valadeo is going to win. And he was supposed to lose. So California, I think, you know, we were down to seven in 2000. Uh, 21. And then in, uh, excuse me, we were up, we were down to seven in 2018. Then we went up to 11 congressional seats out of 53 in the state. And I think we could get up to maybe 14 or 15 in California. This is what's ironic about it. For a so-called blowout, uh, the sweep in Long Island with those four congressional seats and maybe a couple of pickups or two in California. And Kevin McCarthy might have more than seven or eight. He could have 10, 15, even 20 in theory, and that wouldn't be too bad. I think Nancy Nancy Pelosi, ironclad Nancy, ran the House for two years with, what, five or six seats, on depending on vacancies. That's the only margin she had. And yeah. She had enough discipline to give us the, the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, Victor, let's take a moment for some messages and come right back to talk about the less inspiring moments on Election Day. We'll be right back. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. 
So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back. And Victor, so let's look at, I I guess, the least inspiring of all the races was Fetterman won. That's just incredible. That's like the Democrats have proven that they can have basement Joe and um, compromised Fetterman both elected. I, I, that just stuns me, you know? Well, your thoughts? An 85 year old won an election who was dead for, I guess, three weeks in Pennsylvania. So what it means is that mostly young people, but not always, they just vote a straight democratic ticket. They're told just to vote D and, I think it's a larger issue, though. When you look at these races now, the country is so divided. And when you have a federal system where people can immigrate from state to state, in the short term, what's happening is Illinois, California, New York, places like Massachusetts, people are leaving. And they're leaving to sunnier climates, but they're leaving to places like Texas, Tennessee, Florida, where they're so-called free states, there's fewer taxes, there's fewer hassles, there's less crime. I know that AOC and say, oh, there's higher crime. Well, there's only higher crime in red states because of these big cities that are run by blue mayors in red states. So my point is this, that that, uh, it's going to be very hard for anybody in the opposite state to win. By that, I mean, you have really good candidates, even though they were first timers in two cases, but Tiffany Smiley and Tudor Dixon. Mm. I don't don't want to trash Trafalgar or Insider Advantage, but I think they contributed inadvertently to these expectations that these two candidates in Michigan, respectively, and in Washington could beat Gretchen Whitmore or Patty Murray, and that wasn't going to happen given the institutional power and money and get out the vote and vote harvesting and all that goes on with the Democratic Party. But nonetheless, uh, those were good candidates. And Patty Murray's a terrible senator. Gretchen Whitmer is a terrible governor. And Kathy Hochul is a terrible governor. But it doesn't matter. People are just voting as they self-separate. Each, each place is getting redder and bluer is what I'm trying to say. So mm-hmm. California is now unrecognizable to the Reagan, Duck Mason, Pete Wilson, California. And you're never going to have a George Pataki be elected in New York because those people are gone. They've moved away. That's what yes. Andrew Cuomo, remember Cuomo and Hochul said, get out of here. We don't want you here. Take your values to Florida. So they did. And so people just vote straight thing. The second thing is, I don't think debates matter anymore. I, I, I think that you're just welded in to the idea that I'm a red guy and it's on my team. You know, we just talked about Beto, but Beto was never going to win in Texas. You could put a trillion dollars there and he was never going to win on a statewide race. So same thing with, you could give Stacey Abrams a trillion dollars. She wasn't going to do it, even in a now a purple state, but it's still red. Georgia's still red. If you take a, you know what I mean? If, if you just yeah. look at it, it's still red. So my point is this, is that debates don't matter. The candidates, everybody's a bad candidate. No, I think it's just that we are two nations now and our team versus their team. 
And so Kathy Holchel had a terrible debate, horrible. It meant nothing. Uh, Fetterman couldn't, that was the worst debate performance in the history of U.S. elections at any level, major election. He didn't matter. Holmes avoided Carrie Lake. Um, it didn't matter. You see what I'm saying? It, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Kelly didn't want to debate Blake Masters. Ryan didn't do very well against J.D. Vance. I think J.D. Vance won those those debates. It doesn't matter anymore. It's just how much money can you get, and is are you your party and your team there? Are you in a congressional district or a state that is there? And so when you look at that election map, it's kind of scary. It's 90% of the area of the United States is really red and getting redder. And that blue corridors where half the population is, is getting bluer and bluer. But you seem to be telling me that the people that went in and voted for, because the Republicans really emphasized policies, they emphasized energy, they emphasized, you know, the inflation problem, et cetera, that they're not looking at policies anymore. And in and for example, if a Democratic candidate had come up and said, I've always been for, you know, reducing inflation and, and um, freeing up energy. Yeah, th- yeah, they didn't. That's true. But would a Republican voter not vote for that Democrat? Do you think that they're No, I don't think no. so. I think I think that I think we on the conservative side thought this is so McCarthy-esque and such cheap shots. This tying Republican to Paul Pelosi's attacker or yeah. saying that leaving abortion up to the states is going to get thousands of women killed because they can't get an abortion. when they, If they happen to be in you know Wyoming, they can drive across the border somewhere. But that's what they did. And it worked. And Joe Biden's Phantom of the Opera speech that we caricatured on this podcast a lot, that worked. And it got his team out there. So nobody nobody said, well, this is what I'm going to do to stop inflation. And I objected to an open border because I know it it pulls 70% negatively. They didn't do that. They just didn't mention it. They just said, if you vote for a Democrat, you're for democracy. If you vote for a Republican, you're destroying democracy. That was their message. And then you're going to kill everybody from abortion. The Democrat, the Republicans could have done better, though, because they kept saying they harped on those issues. And the problem was, it was this. They kept saying, the election's about the stuff of life. It's about filling your gas tank up. It's about the ability to buy meat in the store or to have not have to choose but between your heating oil and you know having a hamburger or being able to walk in broad daylight in Chicago, million dollar mile, or being able to walk in San Francisco. And you can't do that. Okay, yeah, if you want to make that the issue, but then you've got to say what you're going to do about it. Here's what I'm going to do. I promise you in the first 100 days, I'm going to introduce legislation that tries to rebuild the wall, stops catch and release, deports people who haven't been here for more than five years. Get Come up with a formula. I'm going to get federal attorneys. I'm going to try to pass a law or go after racketeering to get stop this crime wave that the state and local attorneys won't prosecute. 
I'm going to build the Keystone. and I'm going to introduce legislation to reopen Anwar. I'm going to jawbone to support the East Med pipeline overseas. Any of that. They didn't. Yeah. They just said, Joe Biden did that. He did. Yeah. But if you're going to make those issues resonate, you got to tell the people what you're going to do differently. And they didn't. Yeah. And that hurt them. And, and I, I I think yeah. though that the the voters, the independent voters, which seem to be the people on the margins or that throw the margins, are a lot more thoughtful than just I'm you know going to vote Democrat, and that they must be buying into this message. That's actually where I'm going. Like, okay, we have the uh, Republicans with real policy issues, and Carrie Lake, for what you were saying, is the one that seemed to you know, get onto television and say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that immediately. Right. And, but, but the Democrats, it was all threat and fear mongering really. And And it it worked. worked. And that worked with what killed the Republican. It didn't kill them. I want to clarify that they're going to pick up anywhere from, as I said, 10 to 20 seats. I don't know how much. And they have a 50% chance of taking the Senate. I maybe 45%. So if a miracle, I mean, not a miracle, but if every if votes broke a particular way, and they're not giving us information, they just say this county is conservative, but they don't give us, one of my complaints about this election, all of these news outlets, the New York Times does a little better job, but most of us don't want to pay them, but, and we're behind their paywall. But what they should be doing is this is how many, this is 900,000 votes. Here they are. This is the last three elections, how they've broken down Republican versus Democrat. If these votes are all counted and that follows a traditional breakdown, this is what this candidate will get. And this is what that can, it won't be a sure barometer, but it would sure help. But we don't get, so we're, we're, you you and I are talking in the dark, but it's, it could be less less bad. I mean, it's it's all about expectations. If, if the Republican just said, you know what, it's hard uh, when we're outspent against the party of wealth. New Hampshire, they were outspent in the senatorial race 17 to 1, but mostly it was 3 to 4 to 1. And so it's very hard to win over those conditions. And yet we're going to take control of the House, despite Silicon Valley, beside academia, despite uh, the print media, the site, social media, we're going to take in Wall Street and the money, we're going to take the house and we're going to try to get, if they had said that before the election, rather than get swept up with this Newt Gimmich's 50 seats, you know, and yeah. I think it, it, they wouldn't be in such self-recrimination. Yeah, that's and, true. And so that that's one thing to remember that the expectations were just such that uh, it was almost impossible to meet them. Yeah. And without all the data you're talking about, the Democrats seem to be happy with that their method of campaigning was, you know, positive that they had. It was successful. They got of women that are not married. Seventy percent, 70 percent. Those are that's a rubric that's usually a professional woman without kid. I'm saying it's unmarried and without children. There's a lot of them. They got 70 percent of that rubric. And so they were telling them the most important thing in your life is abortion. And there's nothing wrong. If you get pregnant and you hesitate or you you think you might want to bear the child or not, that's your decision. And if one day 
before your due date, you decide that you just can't do it, then you have a perfect right to, to have that baby terminated. And it happens seven or 8,000 times a year. You can terminate that baby in the birth canal. And that issue resonated. And the Republicans didn't, didn't express it and articulate in the, in the manner I just said. Yeah. Because they got into incest and rape and all that, and the and that was the end of them. But that hurt them. And then the independents, I think they lost by two points. They thought they were going, all the polls. And I said I didn't want to criticize the pollsters, but I think the method that we were using on our side, that liberal polls are traditionally two to three points discriminatory against conservatives, and conservatives by nature, given this oppressive McCarthy I atmosphere they don't want to answer the phone they don't answer text messages so inherently they're underrepresented and therefore you're going to add points to make up for that and that gave gave you all of these encouraging polls that were off they were off yeah and so that led to these unreal unreal expectations as well yeah Okay, Victor. Well, I um, just uh, quick, we've already talked about Laxalt and Masters and Walker. And I was just wondering, do you have any prediction for the Senate, given what we know today about those races? Or, Well, uh, Blake Masters is about 100,000 votes down. I think there's about 25%. Can you believe that? Here it is on a Thursday afternoon, and we're getting close to 48 hours after the polls close, and they still don't have the vote. But my point is that there are some rude, crude calculations that he has no margin of error, and he would have to get about 65%. He'd have to get, put it this way, in the conservative areas, he'd have to get about 85 and then maybe split in the Democratic areas areas and then you'd have to assume that all these election day dumps that people actually voted in person at the last moment those were conservatives who you know just put it off but they vote in person more than mail in if you put all of those and everything was right then he could win and laxalt has he's not a hundred thousand down there's less votes in nevada he's about depending on what hour you look at it, 15 to 30,000 ahead. So I think he has a much better chance. If Laxalt were to win, right, that would be 50 yes. votes. And then Masters were to lose, then the Democrats would have 50 votes. And then we'd be right back where we were in late 2020 with Georgia deciding once more with the same Ralphie Warnick, what would be the fate of the nation. And I think for all the criticism of the inarticulate speech of Herschel Walker, he's a stronger candidate at this particular time in this particular mood of the country than Purdue was having to deal with all of the controversy over the 2020 election and the hatred that was starting to be expressed to Donald Trump. So I think there's some reason to be optimistic, optimistic. about the Senate. Yeah. And of course, there's all, you know, um, that also assumes that you have 50, if you were to do all this, that you have um, 
you know, that you have 51 senators just because they say they're Republican doesn't mean they're Republican. Do you really believe that Mitt Romney is a Republican now? Do you believe that Susan Collins is a Republican? Do you believe, and I don't know who's going to win. I think that Shibaka is, Kelly Shabaka, I think, is ahead as of today, but because it's ranked voting, which is the most bankrupt idea in the world, you have, if none gets a 50% majority, we start to look at those other down ballots. And so you really believe if Lisa Murkowski, if Kelly Shabaka, if she could win, that's a great thing. But I, Murkowski always has a way, whether with write-in or, or ranked voting, to defy the will of the people somehow. And if she gets in there, and gets reelected, then you have Murkowski and you have Collins and you have Romney and you really don't have 51, you have 48. Yeah. Because they're, well, I mean, they yeah. voted against, I mean, they both, both women voted against Kavanaugh. Yeah. Well, at least we will have a Congress that won't be. Maybe Susan packing. Collins did. And I want to take that yeah. back, but uh, Murkowski did. She voted against. And yeah. Yeah. But like I was saying that we at least will have a Congress that is not going to try to court pack or create new states of D.C. and Puerto Rico or in the filibuster, I think. Uh, They can't get that through. They cannot get that through. They cannot get that through the House. But so what let me just finish this discussion very quickly. What happens now? What you can you and can you not do? It, It gets back to your point about what's to be optimistic about not to be. Okay, in the House, you can, if you want to shut down the government, I wouldn't recommend it. You can by not approving a budget. There's not going to be any reconciliation um, anymore where majorities pass it, you know, without uh, worry of, of a filibuster. There is going to be a lot of investigations on the House side, and they're going to have people, bulldogs like Jim Jordan. And I think they'll move to have a special prosecutor. I don't think get that through for Hunter Biden, but that would embarrass Joe Biden, especially after the left said that Donald Trump had to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate himself, which is crazy, which Jeff Sessions allowed to happen. So given that precedent, they could probably say, let's just just. Keep it out of politics and go out and see what Hunter did or didn't do and look at the laptop. That could be very embarrassing. Uh, there won't be any more legislation. It'll all be executive order like Barack Obama. And we'll see what happens. And then on the Senate, that is more important in a way because, you know, they have subpoena power. And Rand Paul would be a wonderful advocate to clear up what happened with COVID and go after Fauci. And yeah. in addition to that, they could demand, you know, the Iran deal was a treaty and they circumvented it when some senators kind of went soft and allowed that to happen under Obama, but they could stop that. They could stop all of those circuit appellate uh, Supreme Court appointments. And now given the atmosphere, I think they will if they get 51. They just, I don't know if you can count on Romney, but um, so there's things you can do. And more importantly, and this is very important, because 33 senators, either 33 or 34, come up every two years, there's wild gyrations in the number of incumbents that have exposure. This year, it was the Republicans had the exposure. More of them had to come up for re-election. But next two years, it's about inverse, that there's a lot of Democrats are coming up. And they're going to, I don't want this to happen, but Joe Biden... Econ- Joe Biden's economy is going to be a lot worse in two years, I think, 
And I'm not sure that a lot of other things won't be worse because he's not, he just said he's not going to change. He's going to keep going. And that means more illegal immigration, more crime, less energy, more inflation, more instability abroad. And then these senators are going to have to run on that. And I think if anything happens, uh, any good happens, that the Republican Party is going to understand how the Democrats operate. And what is that? Vote harvesting. Nobody votes on Election Day if they can help it. Uh, October surprises. This October surprise it was the way that they manipulated the, not that they planned it. I don't mean to suggest that, but once it happened, the Pelosi breakdown then was, you know, that was very convenient for them to use that as a libel writ against all Republicans. Yeah, I think part of the problem is the Republicans guy. Everybody out there listening is the same for the most part. I don't know you personally, but. I, I read your comments and you're sane, sober, common sense people. And so our problem is that when we look at things, we look at it rationally. So you ask me how Fetterman won. And then somebody in the audience will say, well, how could they possibly tie the Pelosi thing to MAGA? Or yes, somebody else exactly. Say, well, how could they vote <laughs> for people who are allowing criminals to get out the same day and commit the same crime? Or to why would they vote for somebody that drains the strategic petroleum reserve or begs the Saudis to pump what we have in abundance and won't? Or don't you understand, you people, that this president, with a flip of his pen, illegally just canceled a half a trillion dollars of student debt and injured the fiscal you know, status of the country as a cheap, campaign gimmick to get young people to vote for him. And if that didn't work, he gave amnesties for marijuana. And he was doing anything possible at the expense of U.S. domestic and foreign interests for his own selfish political agenda. So we ask these questions, and then the answer is, these people are different. They don't, that's not, they don't, they they play for keeps. The bottom line is we are better than you are in any means necessary to get power so we can be better than you and stay better in you is justified. Yes. Well, the fact that they're in the bigger cities, they seem to dominate the bigger cities. The the yeah, left does shows is. you that their population is, you know, the very poor and the very rich, as you've it been is. telling us yes. for a long time. Yeah. And it's, long term, everybody listening should be optimistic because if you look at the fertility of red states versus blue states, and stability and uh, it, it all of the indicator. Somebody's been very good at this. I keep praising him. I'm not sure that we all would agree politically, but Joel Kotkin has been very, very good about this. And he shows you that on a lot of key indicators, marriage, family stability, uh, the red states are ahead of the blue states. And when you get into other areas like physical insolvency, crime, etc., uh, it's not just the country's going to be in two different sectors, but there's going to be a more stable, less crime-ridden, and more physically responsible and freer America in the red state, and in a, a growing America, and a shrinking blue America. And yeah. uh, nobody talks about that because it's considered politically incorrect, but for all of the celebration of gay marriage and for all the celebration of transgenderism, and for all the celebration of abortion, and for all the celebration um, 
of the working professional woman, uh, a society, a civilization, a nation depends on fertility or it's, it shrinks and falls in decline when it's not 2.0 or 1.9. We're down to 1.7. And that 1.7 is not uniformly true of, the, of every state. It's basically because we're about 2.5 in places like San Francisco you know, yeah. and abortion is you know, some years it's been up to a million aborted children a year. And so and those are not, you know, those are not the Hillsdale faculty member with nine kids gets an abortion. They don't do that. It's the young professional left wing liberal person or it's the transgender gay couple. that's not having children. Yeah. And so these are things to keep in mind that the left hasn't even thought about. And that's one of the reasons I think that they, that their architects really want illegal immigration, that they will have oh, yeah. children. That, that yeah. people coming oh, across because the they'll border. be having children. Yeah. For one generation, we know it's about 3.8 that immigrant families from South of the border have about three, then within a generation, they adjust down within two generations or they're indistinguishable in their fertility rates. But the left sees, besides that they're cynical and they want cheap labor, as Nancy Pelosi said, who's going to pick our crops? That they do want a fertile population constituency because they don't want to have children themselves. It's too much of a drag from their yeah, exactly. their sophisticated lifestyle. We're <laughs> okay. gonna, you, you said, Sammy, we're going to talk about the taboo subject. Are we really going to talk about that to, Donald what? Trump versus DeSantis? Oh, no. You know, why don't we save that for another time? Or maybe you and Jack can talk about that because we need to go on to okay. our homage to the veterans. And first, yes. we need to take veterans a break. Day tomorrow. Yeah. So let's go to a few messages and come back and we'll talk a little bit about uh, veterans um, and some of the battles that our veterans have been in. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. I would like to remind everybody that Victor has a website, victorhanson.com. It's called The Blade of Perseus. You can subscribe to get VDH Ultra material, but it has lots of other things on it. So you can always come on and get a free subscription and get on our mailing list. But the subscriptions that have that include the Ultra material are $5 a month and $50, $50 a year. So come join us if you get a chance. Yeah, so Victor, we we would like to, you know, a little homage to our to veterans by looking at a couple of battles. I know that we're going to look at some historical ones. So our current veterans, um, we aren't looking at a current battle. So you know, I I 
I want to apologize for that, but I also would like to look at these um, earlier ones. And I, I thought maybe we don't hear a lot about um, things. And so those are why I chose them. And the World War I um, offensive that we don't hear a lot about is the Moose Argonne offensive. And it's a, it was actually a, an allied offensive. I had always thought it was the German offensive, but the Germans were trying no, to no, defend themselves. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. And so everybody should re- remember what happened that we declared war in April of 1917 and we had no army. And by November 11th, 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, Armistice Day, which became Veterans Day, we had landed 2 million, 2 million soldiers into France and Belgium. It was an, that's just a phenomenal, and we didn't lose anybody transporting them over to enemy action. Just a phenomenal record. And we were producing more artillery shells at the end of the war than our two allies combined. And so what had happened is, with the collapse in February, very quickly of 1918, the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, there was no Eastern Front. So Germany had about 2 million soldiers in the field, and they had a critical decision to make. Were they going to be occupied soldiers? And they were, you know, they were 150 miles outside St. Petersburg. They had, you know, it was a huge amount of land, 50 50 million people, a million square miles, and they had they they got to their head. And so what they should have done is just sent everybody to the Western Front, but they sent only about 500,000. But still, that was more than France or England could handle. So suddenly, after these nearly four years, the exhausted allies are in a pinch because this huge German invasion is now the final invasion of the year to get to the Channel is fortified by 500,000 battle-hardened veterans who, in the magnificent German rail system, are now on the Western Front. And they're, they're very good troops. And the Allies buckled, and they, they started to retreat. And, treat, and that, that spring German offensive was just a question. The Americans were trying to plug gaps, but even at St. Mihail, you know, that was in September, it took a long time for us to get there, and we had to train, and they held on. And then the question was, well, now you have a million and a half Americans. It's it's September of 1918, and it's kind of like a rubber band. The Germans went all the way in, and now they're starting to, even with these reinforcements, they're starting to be Ludendorff uh, and Hindenburg are sort of shot their wad. And so these Americans then decided after the St. Mihail battle, they got they decided to put everybody in and go for broke and along with the French break through in the Argonne at the Meuse River. And, you know, people don't remember that that battle was the largest battle. I think over a million Americans participated and it was the most deadly of a single. I mean, it's it, it went on for Oh, you know, almost 50 days, but there were about uh, a quarter of a million casualties, dead, wounded, or missing in them, 27, 28,000, the deadliest battle in U.S. history. And they went on the offensive against Americans did. And uh, all these battles, it's kind of fear. I did not serve, but I grew up with these stories of my family. And I realized, you know, I was about 40 years old. And I said to myself, wow. I never gave due to all these people. My Swedish grandfather was at the 
Moose Argonne in the 91st Division that was one of the first divisions to go on the offensive. And then I remember, you know, his stories that they broke through the German lines and he didn't want to shoot young kids and old men, but every time he had a, he had a, a Lewis machine gun and he shot people and he said that he, they were just kids. Their Germans were on the run. They had them on the run and he got cut off and he, they had a counteroffensive that failed, but he was gas, phosphine gas, got on food. He ate the food. It ate part of his stomach out. The fumes destroyed his lungs and he was disabled for a lot of his mm-hmm. life. And I, but he would, in this very thick Swedish accent, he never talked about it. I got this secondhand from my father. And I'd say, why is grandpa just kind of a hermit? And he lives by, he's a widow and he lives in, you know, his kitchen. And he said, well, you know, he breaks horses. He doesn't have any money, but he had a really, he was almost 30 years old, Victor. He was married and he was on a little farm in Kingsburg, California, and they drafted him. The draft board came up and they said to his immigrant dad, Nels, you got four boys and we got to have one of them right now. And so they took the oldest, but he was 28 years old. And they wow. just yank, yanked him out, left his wife there in a little farm and off he went. And he got gas and he left and you know, he went to Fort Lewis and trained. And then he didn't get back till nine, almost 1920. He was in a Belgian hospital. Mm. And yeah, but he was right there at that battle. And the Americans won. They took a terrible beating because as good a general as John J. Pershing was, the French had so much more experience. And Marshal Folk and others had told us that you cannot, with a Springfield rifle, jump out of a trench en masse, go through artillery shelling, and then, you know, expect to have enough people to survive no man's land and with machine gun uh, attacks. And they did, and they just were mowed down. And finding Mm -hmm. sheer manpower and American artillery, it prevailed, but we paid a terrible price. But the point is, we're on Veterans Day. That that Moose Argonne offensive that started in September, it ended on November 11th. That was the last battle of the war. And it, it ended... As I said, with an armistice, remember that was not a surrender. And as you know, Pershing and other people had said to Wilson, these people are losing, but they're not defeated. And we haven't entered German soil. And they've been 70, 80 miles into Belgium and France. And they've caused caused billions of dollars of destruction through a four-year occupation. And they do not know the sting of defeat. And we have to go into Germany and march on Berlin. And once we do that, they won't do it again because we'll occupy the country and we'll oversee their government. And they didn't do that. That was Wilson's progressive idealistic 14 points. No, no, we don't be vindictive. And no sooner than the armistice took place, November 11th, they didn't get into the serious Versailles discussions till what, February, March of 1919? So what had happened in November, December, January, February? Well, 70% of the troops had gone home back to, to Britain and half of them, or more than half, back to America. And all of a sudden, the Germans thought, hmm, we really didn't lose. We were stabbed in the back by a bunch of commies and Jews. And that myth took hold because they were never occupied. And it was tragic because all these people had been killed and died, wounded, and they were finally on the offensive, and they, there's nothing stopping them to go into Germany. We, yeah. that, that oh was, man, that's yeah. a that that battle then was 
the most significant, really, of them all. We always hear about the Psalm and Verdun. Battle of Bulge, and, and uh, yeah, in turn, it wasn't nearly as deadly as Passchendaele and Psalm and Verdun, but yeah. for Americans, it was. Yes, because we we lost about one hundred seventeen thousand, and about twenty percent of them were killed in that one battle, and yeah. it was a huge army. I mean, my God, it was. Americans, they put in a million point, one million two hundred thousand. I can remember my grandfather did tell me this. You know, he had a very thick accent, and he said, "You know, when when we walk through the the these Belgian towns, they just loved us, Victor. They just loved us what we did." And uh, he had been a quartermaster and was in a reserve at Saint Mihiel, and then they they activated. The 91st, I mean, not a quartermaster, but he was a um, log- logistics person with, he was a master horseman. So he he ran teams and trained black soldiers. Uh, not that, as I said earlier in a pot, not that they needed any training because many of them were from rural America and were farmers, but he, they had him in charge of working with African-Americans to master wagonry and logistics. And then they activated that, That I think they called it the Fur Tree Division, the Wild West Division. They were all cowboys, Nevada, Montana, Idaho, mm-hmm. rural California. Mm-hmm. It was very famous. And I have it, we have it as home, uh, the helmet with a little uh, evergreen tree with 91 on it. And I think my twin brother has his gas mask. And he, they gave him, when he left, they gave him his training rifle, a 30-40 Craig rifle that my brother wow. has. And I, <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it is. He still has it. And my father used to have a few drinks on New Year's Eve and uh, say, okay, boys, in honor of your grandfather, Private Frank Hansen, he'd take the 34 Craig and shoot it. And my mom would go, that's a pretty big slug. And what comes up goes down. And my dad, oh, hell, I'm shooting it. He'd say, I'm shooting it over there in the pond area. It'll go into the water. Don't worry. I don't know where it went, but <laughs> that's how he celebrated. He had yeah. all this 340 Craig. It was a big, big, uh, people know better ballistics than I do, but it was a pretty heavy shell, although it lacked the uh, velocity of the 1906 Springfield regulation rifle. Or yeah. 1903, excuse me. I'm talking out of my head now by memory, but uh, anyway, we have a lot of his memorabilia. And that, that was one member of my family that kind of set. And if you go to Kingsburg, California today, there's a park called Memorial Park in downtown Kingsburg, California. And on the, let me get this right, I think it's the south, uh, north, west, northeast corner, there's a monument because that was his home. And his father gave, uh, the, the farmhouse to the city, they made a park out of it. And there's a memorial there about that family, about all four. He he was a wounded veteran of World War One. His son, my father, um, was a B-29. I, it's hard to know whether they gave him credit for the last six missions, but all of them, but it was 34 combat missions, 40 total missions. And then Victor, that I'm named after, was killed on Okinawa. We can talk about that. And then Bob Hansen was in Iran ferrying materials to the Soviet Union. So all four of them were there from this little family. Yeah. 
Well, Okinawa, now that you've spoken about it, was one of those battles that was one of the worst in the Pacific, I understand, at least for the Japanese, if not for the United States. So the United States lost 12,500 dead and and 50,000 casualties. So it was no small fight. And yes, I would like to hear a little bit about your Yeah, very quickly. That was... um... We didn't use the word Okinawa when I was growing up. It was not spoken about. And every once in a while, my dad would have a drink and he'd get angry. And uh, his first cousin's mother died in uh, childbirth. And then his father had a sulfur accident, a sulfur machine. Anybody who had grapes knows how to use that. And he, he was blinded. And so my grandparents kind of raised his first cousin, Victor Hansen, who looked kind of like him. They were the same size, big Swedes, and they were inseparable. Same, They were born about the same month, I think. And uh, they both joined the Marines together out of the University of Pacific. They were tied in and split ins, or guard and tied in for Alonzo Stagg. And they had heard of this new 6th Marine Division that they were hiring or hiring, enlisting people with college degrees. It was supposed to be a super division. They were going to bring people from the old breed, first division, marine division, and they were going to integrate them, make a new uh, division that would train in Guadalcanal and be expertise. And they were going to unleash them for their first big battle at Okinawa. And that was on April 1st, I think, of 1945. And the idea was that after Iwo Jima, they had mastered in Tarawa and Peleliu, they had mastered the arts of island hopping. And so when they landed... And by the way, it was dreamed up, I think, in the Fairmont Hotel. And I don't know why they did it, because, you know, we're getting very close on April 1945 to the test dropping of the uh, first atomic bomb in New Mexico. You see what I'm getting at? They knew that they had a weapon that could perhaps work, and they had two more ordered. So the idea that you're going to go into the largest of all Japanese islands that's the closest to the Japanese mainland and you're going to unleash the entire Pacific fleet in the height of kamikaze uh, attacks. Kamikazes only had 350 miles one way to go get the fleet. And you were going to, these people knew you were coming for a year. It's a huge island, and they were three stories deep into the coral and volcanic rock of the island and and you were going to pry them out and you were not going to allow the marines to have amphibious uh landings behind enemy lines you were just going to say the marines you go in one direction and then you go back up to the island and help out the army and you're going to go right at full blast against the shuri line which was a fortified subterranean line and had you know castles in it and ruins and they did that and Unfortunately, the Battle of Okinawa lasted, you know, over 80 days. And highest ranking officer, uh, Simon Bolivar Buckner, the, um, the third or second, second was killed by a freak uh, coral fragment from an artillery strike and was killed. And they it went in, you know, depending on how what date you use, whether it's June 22nd or July 10th or something about when it was finally pacified. But it was a disaster. 50,000 casualties. If you count the Navy dead, uh, I think there was 19 ships that were sunk, 5,000 sailors, 7,000 Army and Marine killed. And you can really read about it in two great books, uh, 
E.B. Sledge with the Old Breed. That is just a classic book. I mentioned I wrote uh, a book called Ripples of Battle, where I have a chapter on Okinawa, and um, and I got a nice letter from E.B. Sledge. And then there was a less, there was a very well written by William Manchester, the the popular historian called Goodbye Darkness about the First Marine Division, but it was it was factually incorrect. But I, anyway, I, I talked about that. But when you read about what they what they endured, it was just horrific. And and Victor thought that in t- when they hit the sh- hit Sugarloaf Hill Mountain, it was a small mountain, but they called it Sugarloaf because it was a prominent focus of defense. And they took it. We t- it was only about two hundred and fifty feet, but they took it. Where we paused, took it, we paused. On the last day, May nineteenth, they had almost taken it, and he went up and was shot in the leg, and they couldn't evacuate him. They could talk to him, apparently, and uh, he bled to death. And as I said on an earlier podcast, um, when I was writing that chapter, I really looked at all of his letters, and nobody wanted to look at them. Literally, he had written them to my grandfather, and nobody wow. opened them. They did not want to open them. So for the first time, I, I wrote that. I was doing this about 2003, they had been there for 48 years. Oh, my gosh. And I had the name of all of his commanding officers. So I went on the internet, the new internet, and found the person who wrote the letter to my grandfather mm. that he had been killed. And um, I don't know why he didn't write it to his own father, who was also named Victor Hansen. But nevertheless, I wrote him a letter, and he was alive at 93, and he had the letter that he wrote my grandfather, and he sent it to me. Oh, wow. And, and then he he called. There were three or four other people still alive. And they all wrote me and said, what a wonderful person. And he said that when he was bleeding to death, one of the people in that regiment, the 29th Marines, ran out to try to rescue him. That had five, four. Victor was six, four, six, five. And this kid was like five, six, but they were best friends. And he, he was killed trying to save him. And then nobody ventured forth wisely, I suppose. And then one of them wrote and said, you won his ring. And uh, I didn't know what that meant. I'm a classicist, but uh, I get it in the mail. He said, it's been on my mantle for nearly 50 years, and nobody's ever claimed it. And he was one of my best friends, so they sent it to me in the mail. And guess what? It was a a ring with a Roman soldier on it. Wow. But I grew up with his briefcase, his Louisville slugger bat, his baseball cleats. I used his uh, <laughs> I used his little briefcase, and there was a little letter. And as I said earlier, I, I have all of his letters, and it's, it's very sad because he's on Guadalcanal, and he says, uh, "Hey, dear mom and pop, things are swell, little hot, got a little touch of malaria, but no big deal. But hey, everybody says in the First Marine Division that if you got a 1911 automatic 45, you got a better chance of." living. There's a pawn shop in Fresno. Could you please go get it? And there's this change of letter about his grandparents, my great-grandfather, who, I I don't know, he and his wife got a $50 check from Victor, their grandson, and they went all over Fresno, and finally they found it. And he drew a picture of it, exactly what to get, and they sent him that forty-five automatic with a case of ammunition. Isn't that funny that Marines... Here it's 1945, and they hold juggernaut of American productive capacity. They still didn't have the money or the resources or I don't know what to equip Marines with a 45. 
yeah. in, case, in case they're M1 jammed or something. Yeah. Anyway, he had that and, and he was killed. And then he was an only child. So that family line died out. Victor Sr. was blind. His mother had died. He got killed. And there were no of that one branch of the family. They were completely wiped out. Wow. And then my father named me after him and he gave me this big lecture that really had an impact on me that, you know, and my mother knew him really well. My mother was dating my father and the three of them were, were best friends. So they would go out. And so my mother joined in on these lectures to me that this guy was a very superb straight A student, football player, very shy. My dad said, he's not like me. He was not boisterous. He was very shy and studious. My dad was a good student, but kind of outgoing. And then he said, uh, you have a, I'm going to give, we gave you this name and you're going to have to live up to it. I don't want you ever to be arrested. I don't want you ever to be publicly drunk. I don't want you to take drugs. I don't want you, he gave me all these lists. And I said, hey, you, I see you drinking. And, you know, he said, that's enough. Don't. And I, I would say, <laughs> I would say until I was 30, I was haunted by that. Yeah. That I had to live somebody I'd never met, but I had all the stuff in in the barn. You know, I had his uh, spat shoes that when he was in high school prom, I had mm -hmm. his baseball mitt, baseball hat from Kingsburg High School. Very sad. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, that is sad. And your father as well was um, in the Air Force, however, and um, the another battle that we don't hear much about. And I think it's because it's overshadowed by the atomic bombs for some reason. I don't know why is the night raids on Tokyo and especially that not March 9th and 10th. Oh my God, severe... March 9th. Everybody should remember that date. It was the most deadly day in the history of warfare. 100,000, according to Japanese and post-American, uh, post-war American studies. But I mean, there's been some accounts lately based on population densities and photographs of the destruction, they suggest that maybe 150,000 had been killed. But it wow. was the deadliest day. And I think out of the 335 B-29s that took off, that uh, I think 200 and I don't know what it was, 80 made it to the target. And there were th over 30 that were shot down, 11 men in each one. And of course, my father said nobody wore a parachute because you'd rather be incinerated on the way down than beheaded, you know. Yeah. But the idea was that since uh, December, both in China and India, then after the capture of the Marianas at Chinyan, Saipan, Saipan and Guam, that this B-29 experimental plane was flying at 30,000 feet and burning the engines up to get high with a load of 10,000 pounds of bombs, you know, it, 20 tons. Uh, 10 ton of bombs it could, in theory, carry almost up to 20,000. And they were not hitting it. There was a, a Gulf Stream over Tokyo, three or 400 miles an hour at those elevations, you know, high. You drop a bomb, it blows a mile off course. And they were not getting the results. They didn't have fighter escort. And it was very hard to take off. They were having a very high 2 or 3% loss rate per accident. And they were doing nothing. And this thing was a bigger expense than the Manhattan Project. The B-29 cost $2 billion. Wow. It was a huge behemoth airplane that was the first pressurized cabin. A lot of listeners know it better than I do, so I want to be careful what I say, but uh, to be sure I'm accurate. But my father um, was uh, 
in the Marines with Victor, they joined together. And that's a, as I said, it's kind of a taboo subject. We don't know who hit who, but one of them hit a senior officer at a bar who had said something. And one of them had to take the blame. And my dad took the blame. Probably he was the one that hit them. And they, to punish him, they put him in an experimental B-29 and transferred him out of the Marine Corps. And the idea was that he was going to get killed because the first experimental planes had been crashing in Nebraska. But he didn't. And he not only didn't get killed, he flew, as I said, 40 missions, 34 in combat on this uh, B-29 as a central fire control gunner. And I have the pictures are pretty frightening of the March 9th, 10th raid of the aerial pictures of the bombing of Tokyo. And the idea behind the raid very quickly was that they had dispersed their construction of aircraft industrial goods. In other words, they had subcontractors all through Tokyo. And then at night, they would assemble the parts in factories. And so they felt that uh, even though they had criticized the British for what the British called area bombing, or we called carpet bombing, they're not quite synonymous. But nonetheless, we did what we criticized Britain for doing over Dresden or Hamburg. And we began carpet bombing. And unfortunately for the Japanese, it coincided with the uh, with the discovery of napalm, which was the DuPont Corporation's uh, ability to make sort of a liquid petroleum gel that would burn for four or five minutes without any combustible material. And when they added that to traditional incendiaries that had, you know, magnesium and aluminum and stuff, it was a lethal mixture. And so LeMay said, you know what, you guys are getting a lot of publicity, but you're not getting any results. And so... In March, right before March, they had tried it on some cities with various boats. But he said, you know what? All of the disadvantages are our advantages. Yes, this plane can go up to 30,000 feet. But if you go down to 5,000 or 6,000, it can carry a hell of a lot more weight. So we'll have fewer missions, more payload. And yes, it's very windy up there. And the, it, you 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 get blown off course. and But if you get in a tailwind, you're going to zoom in, and then you have that speed of that B-29 is going to go up to 250 from 250 up to 300 plus when you get on the jet stream. And guess what? If you're not doing specific Norden bombsite precision bombing, you're just dropping napalm and traditional incendiaries, and the wind is your ally, not your enemy. It's going to blow. And this is not the brick-and-mortar construction of Germany. These are wood, bamboo, and rice uh, door, mixture doors, and it'll go up. And so he said, uh, you know, two things will happen if it doesn't work. If we lose a war, I'll be tried as a war criminal. And if you all get shot down at five or 6,000 feet, I'm going to be sacked like his predecessor was. And so yeah. he sent them in on March 9th and 10th. 300, as I said, it was over 300 of them, and I think actually 280, 279, 280, they came in with the napalm cluster bombs. I remember, even remember the M69, and there's a long story about it with the DuPont Corporation. Yeah. And uh, my father said that when they came in, I don't know what, he, they had Pathfinder planes, he was he was he was lucky because he was, I think, within the first 50 that went in from Tinian, but I'm not sure about that. I'll have to check. But he did say that he could smell human flesh from where he was. And oh, my God. They looked back, uh, and they could smell the smoke 
from about 75 miles away and he could see the glare they could see the glare for over 100 miles after they got done mm. and yeah, that yeah. was not the end of it and so what happened in the next 30 days they destroyed 45 percent of the industrial urban cores of japanese cities mm. and, that, uh, but that night was um a hundred uh, over a hundred thousand Japanese dead yeah. from the well, firestorms, it, right? It reached thousands of degrees. It was much more deadly. I mean, depending on whose figures you use, somewhere on either side of fifty thousand at Nagasaki and either side of eighty thousand at Hiroshima. But this was far deadlier. And yes, yes. Lemay, remember, um, was against the atomic bomb because the idea of taking Okinawa was to get B twenty nine bases. 350 miles from Japan, so not 1,500 miles in the Marianas. And you can see what he was getting at because instead of flying for eight or nine hours and dropping bombs and flying home, you could take off and then two hours be over Japan and then drop the bombs and come back in four hours. And you might even, instead of doing that three or four times a week, week from the Marianas, you could do it every day from Okinawa. And they had yeah. 2,400 bombers in the Marianas, and they were had 2,400 or 2,500 on order that were being delivered. So you take Okinawa, and as I said, it was declared, whether depending on what date you use, late June or July, then think about it. You were going to have 5,000 B-29s flying fire raids against Japan that had already been half burned out, and they had a whole secondary list of small cities. And, and, and the war had been over in early May in the European theater. And guess what? There were 5,000 idle B-17s, Lancaster bombers, and B-24, all four-engine heavy bombers. And there were plans to bring a lot of them over to Okinawa. So you yes. can see that conceivably, if you had not dropped those two bombs, you could have had from the Marianas and Okinawa 10,000 four-engine Allied bombers. And that would have been... People keep saying, well, the atomic bomb saved us from an invasion. There was a million men on both sides that were saved, maybe a million casualties on the American side. Yes, that's true. But had the war gone on uh, under LeMay's fire raid strategy, there would have been 10 million people killed yeah. if they didn't surrender. So it was yeah. it was a pretty nasty business. And um, I think it made a big impression on my father because... Um, I don't know how to say it, but he was a he farmed and then he he taught in Reedley, California at a little college called Reedley College, and he was an administrator there. And he farmed at the same time for a number of years. And he was a football coach. And um I guess what I'm saying is that town in the nineteen forties and fifties had a lot of Japanese immigrants. And it seemed to me that uh we were always having Japanese uh, Americans at our home. And when we went to meet my dad for dinner, we always talked to Japanese. We stopped at Japanese markets. And my father loved Japanese Americans. And I think part of it was, I don't know if it's guilt or what it was, but he, you know what I mean? It was just yeah. something. And then yet it's schizophrenic. At the same time, he didn't want us to buy Japanese cars from Japan. Yeah. And well, so, you know, probably some sense of having been involved in that, the desire for a peace or a reckoning with anybody and everybody you ran into that was Japanese, perhaps. Yeah, I didn't. I When I was in high school, ignorant and arrogant as you are, you always want to go out with your buddies. But my father had never had a drink of alcohol till he was 50 years old. Can you imagine that? 
And that wasn't, you know, that, that was not until the early 70s and I was graduating from high school. And then he started to drink and, and drink heavily. And I didn't want to be around him because he would get into these, he wouldn't talk about the war, but he would talk when he was, you know, half a bottle of whiskey. And some of the stories he he told were frightening. I mean, absolutely yeah. frightening about what it was like, you know, a, a Benzendrine-like drug um, to get up with coffee and then a second all that drug to go to sleep when they got back and wow. then, um, your eardrum, all of his eardrums were ruptured. The pressurized cabin wasn't so pressurized because they did, they didn't just do in fire raids. They also did conventional heavy bombing in between the raids at 30,000 feet. And, um, they also mined the harbors of Korea and Japan. So they, it was, they really wore out the planes and they wore out the men. And as I said, I think with a Jack, I'm, Jack's podcast, I met all, almost all the people in the crew at one time or another came and visited over my lifetime. And my mother, as I said earlier, always said um, they were all remarkable people. And uh, she had met them earlier, of course, before I was born, and she always said the same thing. All of the attributes of those men that made them fearless and indomitable in war, unfortunately, sometimes are, are antithetical to success and peace. There were two of them that were very successful. I shouldn't say that in business, very bright, the navigator and one of the gunners. But the rest of them, it was like, the ability to not be afraid, to just jump into a B-29, to volunteer for a dangerous mission, to stare down a Japanese raiding fighter coming at, you know, diving at 400 miles right at you and not black out. Um, or the pilot was a guy named Alan B was a genius and saved them so many times. It's almost that those those traits of audacity are not the kind that will get you promoted or get you tenure in a job, you know. So gotcha. I said earlier, my mom was always saying, well, your dad's on his 41st mission, unfortunately, or what is he going to do today? And I'd always say, what does that mean? She said, well, if you want to bomb Tokyo, you need guys like your dad. If you want somebody uh, to keep his mouth shut while they're firing a teacher, you don't want your dad in the room because he'll mouth off and try to save the teacher's job. And he will pay a big price for it. Yeah. Well, Victor, I would like to just say this has been a wonderful homage to our veterans. And we're very thankful for all of our military veterans, their bravery and their yeah. defense of our nation and our nation's interests. So yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I mentioned with Jack that some, um, Special Forces came and saw me about a month ago, and it was quite moving to see the caliber of professional soldiers that we have. It's just amazing. Yeah. Every time I see them, it, it, you know, I it's like watching a 1950s Western, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. the same type of can-do attitude of these people. And it's very rare to see people that have such uh, intellectual ability and muscularity and it's almost um, Olympian-like, you know, that you have to be a balance between mind and body. But when you see these people and, you know, and they'll come up to your office once in a while and they're six, one or two and they're solid muscle and they've been wounded or they have all these 
experiences in Afghanistan and Iran, and they come up to talk to you about Thucydides. It's it's really strange. And <laughs> I, I hope to God that people in this country uh, understand that. And that's what I really get upset about the Pentagon sometimes with this indoctrination and this wokeness. Do they real, realize that, that they have a rare talent, that this country, more than any other country in the world, has produced some of the best soldiers in the world? And they're still there, those families. And please, please, if you're listening to anybody in the military, don't tamper with that. Don't tell these people they need to have woke indoctrination. Don't tell them that they're suffering from white supremacy. General Milley and General Austin do not suggest that these people are under any cloud of suspicion because do not pull out of Afghanistan the way that we did. If you if you doubt their service or their efficacy, or you in any way make them lose confidence in the military, they won't join. If without joining, we're, we're done for because we have about 1% of the population that's keeping this country safe. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Victor. Uh, we're, we're way over time, but that's okay. Cause okay. that was such a wonderful discussion of uh, all of your uncles and, and grandparents and, and the experiences in our early, earlier wars, world war one, it's, they seem so far away now. I, I confess back in the early 20th century, but thank you so much for all of that. And also the discussion of the election that was the first yes. your first discussion from the, that's my first take i'm sure by, yeah. i'm sure by yeah. the time people listen that a lot of it's out of date but that's my take on it and All we'll right. talk about if jack and i don't sammy we'll talk about the ongoing saga saga and it's ongoing between trump and DeSantis. yeah and i hope there's a way to find us some solution where they combine their their resources but yeah a, instead of destroying each other huh? i hope not i hope not yeah. No all right. Okay. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. And thanks to all of our listeners. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen, and we're signing off. Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you have moderate to high stress, a doctor formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Chronic stress wrecks havoc on blood sugar, which can cause your body to store excess fat. Stress can also slow your metabolism, which fuels weight gain. And you know all about stress eating and sugar cravings. Now, the good news. The studied ingredients in lean have been shown to help maintain healthy blood sugar levels, help optimize metabolism, and keep your appetite under control. If your life is a bit stressful and you want to lose weight, add lean to your healthy diet and exercise lifestyle. Get 15% off and free shipping at TakeLean.com and enter VICTOR15. That's promo code VICTOR15 at TakeLean.com, TakeLean.com. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease and is not a substitute or alternative for care from a healthcare provider.